The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. If you have more than one sibling or more than one child, you know from a very early age, children have different passions, different enjoyments. They like different things. My oldest son, Corbin, loves sports. My daughter, Carissa, loves to sing. My son, Cooper, just loves to be funny. My second oldest child, Caleb, loves to do outdoorsy things. He'll come up and ask, Dad, can I mow the yard? You can't have him. He's mine. (laughs) Dad, can I rake the leaves? Dad, can I start a fire? Dad, can I build a fort? Dad, can... So he loves doing all of these things outdoors. He loves to do crafts. And so... For Caleb, we were looking to find a place to take him to Cub Scouts. We thought that would be a great fit. Well, this past Tuesday, my wife heard that there was going to be a Cub Scout meeting at the school down the road. And so we showed up and we're there and we don't know anybody. We feel like outsiders. It's kind of scary being there. Um, Thankfully, there were no uniforms because everybody was dressed up for Halloween. And so we're there, but it's just you feel like an outsider. And then a gentleman gets up, the troop leader or whatever he's called. I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and he talks about all the stages that lead up to being an elite Boy Scout. And this elite Boy Scout is called an Eagle Scout. And to become an Eagle Scout, you have to work your way up through the Cub Scouts and through the Weeblo Scouts and through the Boy Scouts. And you have to earn all of these merit badges to get to this elite community called the Eagle Scouts. You know, all of us were born with a desire to be a part of a community, even an elite community. Maybe you can resonate with this in your own life, but I know in mine... I remember the silly things I did in junior high and high school to fit in with the cool kids. And in college, the things I had to go through in pledgeship, which cannot be named here, that I did to to belong to this elite group of fraternity brothers. Or how after college, went through seminary so that I could become a pastor. Some of you have gone through many different things to become partner or to get an advance in your career, to become part of leadership or to get tenure in your occupation. We go through many things to be a part of a community. And we know what it's like when we're not a part of a community, when we move to a new area and we don't know anybody and we feel all alone and we long to be connected to community. And we have this longing in us because it was put there by God. You see, all of us were made for the most glorious, most elite community known to human history, and that is community with the Trinitarian God, but also community with his people. And ever since the Garden of Eden, we've been fighting to regain that community. And we see that as we work through these different things to gain acceptance into these elite communities of this world. Well, today, Peter is going to remind us that Christ not only came to redeem us as individuals, but he came to redeem a community of believers. And so if you would please open up to 1 Peter, we'll be in chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 4 through 12 today. 
So far, we've learned a lot about this new community, this, this community of believers. We've learned that they are a community that has a living hope in the ongoing work of the salvation of God, that this community has access to an inexpressible joy, even in the midst of suffering and grief, that this community belongs wholly to God. They've been ransomed by him and adopted by him. And then last week we saw the superfood of this community is the word of God. This week we get a better understanding of this community of this community of God's people called the church. So let's read together 1 Peter chapter 2, page 1014 in the Red Bible, page 1316 in the Children's Bible. We'll be reading verses 4 through 12. 1 Peter 2, 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, You yourself, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people For his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for creating a community, for redeeming a community of your people. Lord, we come today confessing that so often in our shame and in our arrogance and in our pride and in our insecurities, we isolate. We don't want to be known. We don't want to know others. We don't want to love others sacrificially. We just want to stay to ourselves. And yet your word reminds us today that this is a detriment to our soul. And so God, pray that As we study your word, we would see the beauty and the necessity of the community that you have redeemed. And that we would enjoy it as a gift from you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a kid, my family went down to Florida 
one winter and we were out on the beach and it was a beautiful day and it was this great big sandy beach. And my mom yells out to me. She says, Danny, come here. Don't call me Danny again, but she can say, Danny, come here. And she saw this little red stone or a shell or something. It was this little red piece that was in the sand. It was very peculiar looking. And so I remember looking at it and studying it, being a little bit scared of it, but not sure what it was because it didn't belong in this sandy beach. It looked like something that had floated up on shore or something mysterious. And so I started to look at it and I bent down to look at this very peculiar and interesting thing. And then it moved and my mom screamed and I yelled and I ran away and found out that it was just my mom's painted toenail. When something is peculiar, it sticks out. When something is peculiar, it looks strange. Like it doesn't necessarily belong in that spot. And it becomes almost fascinating. It draws you in. You know, I looked up the word peculiar and there are several synonyms. Such as unusual, curious, unexpected, unfamiliar, exceptional, extraordinary, remarkable, puzzling, mysterious, eccentric. In the King James translation of the passage that we're reading today, it calls the church a peculiar people. I love that phrase. That we, the people who have been redeemed by God, are peculiar people, peculiar to the world. We look as if maybe we don't quite fit in, but there is an attraction of the love and grace and mercy of God flowing through us into this world. And so today we're going to look at this peculiar people, this elite community called the church. And there are three features of this elite community that I want to look at. The first is this entrance into this peculiar people. How do we become a part of this community called the church? Well, if you look in verse four, it starts like this saying, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. This verse quickly points out something that we see throughout the gospels. And that is that Jesus, the real Jesus, not the the fake hippie Jesus, but the real Jesus is the most polarizing figure to ever walk the face of the earth. You either loved him or you hated him. As we read on, we see it says that Jesus is rejected as the living stone. And he's not just any old stone, but he is the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the most important stone in the whole building. It is the first stone laid and it has to be flat. It has to be true. It has to be square. It has to be solid because on that stone, the rest of the structure springs to life. The walls are put together. Even the foundation comes from that cornerstone. It is the foundation of the entire structure. And here we read that Jesus is the cornerstone, meaning that he is to be the foundation of the church. Now, because Jesus is so polarizing, he is not the foundation for every person. As a matter of fact, we read in verse 8, That he is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. 
You know, I thought about this today. How can a rock be offensive? Well, I started to think, what makes people offensive? What makes people offensive is when they claim to be an authority on something and they tell you something about yourself that you don't want to hear. For example, if someone thinks that they are an authority on style and says to you, your shirt is ugly, that's offensive, right? If someone believes himself to be an authority on intelligence and says, you don't know what you're talking about, that's offensive. If someone claims to be an authority on talent and says, you're not good enough, that's offensive. And this is a little bit what Jesus does. He tells us truth as an authority figure. And for many, that is very offensive. Jesus actually comes to the religious authorities, those that are in charge. And he claims authority over their teaching. And he tells them that their good deeds are worthless, that they gain no merit with God. He actually tells these religious authorities that they're children of Satan and that they're condemned because of their sin and deserving of hell. You can imagine how offensive this might have been to them. You can imagine how offensive this is to religious people today. Jesus claimed himself to be the ultimate authority, accepting the praises as the son of God and the Christ and the Messiah. And so the Jews, the religious leaders were extremely offended and tried to stone him and even kill him. Verse eight continues, says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Jesus was a stumbling stone of offense because the Jewish leaders, like every other human being, did not want to build their foundation on Jesus. They wanted to build their foundation on themselves, on their own righteousness, on their own good deeds. Romans 9 clarifies this for us. It says this. It says, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, in other words, they didn't do good things necessarily to earn God's favor, but they have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, not by works. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it, if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. How did they stumble over Jesus? They didn't like the fact that Jesus was saying, all your righteous deeds are worthless in meriting you God's favor. It's been said that the same son that melts the wax, hardens the clay for Christ to some He is a stumbling stone. And yet for others, the same Christ is the cornerstone. For some, Jesus is so extremely offensive. And yet for others, Jesus is the foundation of their life. Verse 4, Peter talking to Christians, say, as you come to him. This is the secret to being a part of this great and glorious and peculiar people. Coming to Jesus, coming to Jesus, not simply as a moral example or as a buddy, 
but as Lord and Savior. Coming to him as the cornerstone of your life. Verse 6 continues, it says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, will not be dishonored, disgraced. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A couple of weeks ago, I decided to replace some of the lighting fixtures on the outside of my house. <clears throat> and as I got to two particular fixtures, I noticed that they were hanging off. And so the little electrical box that they were connected to, I tried to uh, screw in better so that they'd be nice and firm and solid in there, but the screws wouldn't catch. And so as I started to investigate, I realized that the plywood behind it was all dry rot. It was rotting out. And as I pulled away the beautiful siding, the cedar siding, I realized more and more how decayed it was. And I had to go all the way down to the ground. And it was so rotten that you could literally just take your pinky finger and poke it through the plywood. That's how rotten out it was. And what's amazing is it looked so good on the outside. It looked perfect on the outside. But water was seeping in through, the, through, these, water, through these lighting fixtures. And it was rotting out the inside. And so I had to replace it with new plywood and attach a light to it. You know, the Bible tells us that there are two possible foundations for salvation. The first foundation we can try to stand upon is our own good works. And, you know, it might look good from the outside. It might look beautiful from the outside. You may be an avid church attender. You may say everything is well. Other people might call you a good person. Other people might look up to you. But sin siphons its way behind the veneer and it rots away our soul. And so the foundation of our good works for God's acceptance is not only weak, it is faulty to the core. And so we may be able to trick others. We may even be able to trick ourselves, but we cannot trick God. We will not trick God. He knows what is inside of our hearts. And so if we stand before God on the day of judgment and he peels away the veneer and he looks deep into our hearts and exposes all of our sin, we will stand before him with great shame. But the good news of the gospel is that God provides for us another foundation to stand upon. Not of our own righteousness, but of the righteousness of Christ. God offers to us a rock, a cornerstone, a better foundation, a sure foundation. And when we stand on that foundation, when we stand before God and he peels away the veneer, he will see the righteousness of Christ. If you're here today and you trust in Christ for your salvation, this means that you believe that your own foundation is insufficient and that you have given your foundation, your sin, your worthless deeds to Christ, that he has paid for it in full upon the cross and that he has given you his righteousness. And so that when God peels away the siding of your heart, he will look into it and see the righteousness of Christ. And so you will no longer You will not have to stand before God in shame, but you will receive the honor of a person 
who is completely righteous, not by our works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. How do we become a part of God's elite community? By rejecting ourselves as the foundation of salvation and entrusting ourselves to Christ as our chief cornerstone. So that is how we become a part of this elite community, this peculiar people. Now, what is the identity of this peculiar people, the church? You know, it is critical for us to understand our identity. Matter of fact, much of what we do funnels back to who we are. You know, if you thought you were a bear, you would act like a bear. If you thought that you were a bird, you would act like a bird. Knowing who you are is vital to how you live. And so Peter here tells us who we are. He knows that we are prone to identity amnesia in which we're always forgetting who we are in Christ and living out of these false identities, these, these horizontal identities instead of the true and vertical identity of who we have in Christ. And so he reminds us of who we are as a church. First, we see he tells us that we are a new temple. Verse 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. The picture that Peter is giving here is of a new temple. The new temple was central to Old Testament Israel. It's where God dwelt. And what Peter says here is that this new temple is not a temple built of rock stones, but of human stones with Christ as the cornerstone. And as living stones, we interact with one another. We've been made alive by our connection to the living cornerstone, Jesus Christ. The book of Ephesians elaborates on this new temple imagery. The Apostle Paul, writing to Gentiles and to some Jews, talks about how there is this new temple, which is the church. And he says this. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are a fellow citizen with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What Peter is saying and what Paul is saying is that the temple of God is no longer a steeple, but it is a people a people with Christ as their cornerstone and their foundation being the teaching and the testimonies of the apostles and prophets is found in the scriptures and that we are built up into this new temple to enjoy God and to worship God and to come before God. Now, Peter goes on to say that not only are we a new temple, but we are also a holy priesthood. Priests in the Old Testament we're only allowed to go into this place, to go into the presence of God once a year. And only the great high priest that year would be able to. It was called the Holy of Holies. And he had to make many sacrifices for his sin to enter into that Holy Holies, to be in the presence of God. But what Peter is telling us here is that we now, through Jesus Christ, have continual access to the God of the universe. In Mark 15, as Jesus is Dying on the cross, we read this amazing statement, which is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels. And it says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple curtain was the curtain that separated sinful man 
from a holy God. Some think that it was a foot thick. Could you imagine a curtain a foot thick? And when Christ died on the cross, the curtain was torn in two, showing us that through Jesus Christ, we now all, through him, have access to a holy God. Hebrews 10, 19 reaffirms this. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We, the church, are not only the temple of God, we are the priesthood of all believers. And we have this amazing privilege that we take for granted all the time to come in the presence of a holy God because our sin has been washed clean by the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. As we read on, we see as being the new temple and being priests, we are also to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. No longer do we give animal sacrifices because all of those pointed to the true sacrifice, Jesus Christ, which wiped away all of our sin. And so now we give spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices in the scripture include giving money to missionaries. It includes offering your praise to God as we did this morning. Spiritual sacrifices include giving all of your life to God, which means no part of your life is mundane. No part of your life is an opportunity is not an opportunity to offer worship and praise and spiritual sacrifices to God. And so we are priests and have continual access to God. And we offer spiritual sacrifices of all that we have to the praise and glory of that God. Now we are not only a new temple as a church, but we are also a new people. Much of the language used here in verse 9 and 10 is language used of Israel as they were coming up out of Egypt. And so some of it might sound familiar to you as we covered this earlier this year. But in verse 9, Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We, the church, Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles are just non-Jews. At one time, we were not a people, but now we have become a people because we are a chosen race, chosen by God to come together, to be redeemed by God. We are a royal priesthood. You know, the first time it mentioned priesthood back in verse 5, it was talking about our vertical relationship with God, that we now have access to God. But here it's talking about our horizontal, that we are to be gospel witnesses to the world. No matter where we are, no matter where we work, God has seasoned us throughout Green Bay to bring forth the glorious news of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 10 says, once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, what makes us a holy people is not that we are holy people. What makes us a holy people is that we have a holy God 
who has shown mercy to us, who has given us what we don't deserve, who has given us light and salvation. And as a result, we are called to share that light with others. Knowing who you are is extremely important for how you live, for what you believe. If you believe I'm a drunkard, if you believe I'm a witch, if you believe I'm a self-indulger or an Eeyore, whatever those things are, if you're in Christ, it isn't true. That is not your primary identity. Your identity is as part of an elite community, a peculiar people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood by God's mercy. And so that is our identity as a peculiar people. Finally, there is an agenda for this peculiar people. There is a goal. There is an end. There is a purpose for them. Look in verse 9 with me. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, darkness is a place of confusion, a place of fear many times. And this is where all of us started our life spiritually. We did not know God. We were spiritually unknowing. We couldn't see what was true and what was untrue. But God, in his great mercy, brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, where we could see the glory of his grace and mercy and majesty. And we could tell of his glory to others. Have you ever seen a good movie or read a good book that others haven't seen or read? And you go and you tell others about it. You tell them of the excellencies of this story and how they should go and look at it for themselves. In the same way, we are called to see the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. And we are to go to those in darkness and tell them of his excellencies that they too might know the glory of God, that they too might come into the light. Verse 11 continues with the same thing. It says, Before, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter is reminding us that we do not belong to this world, that we are sojourners, that we are exiles on this world, that we belong to another world, and we are to live according to that other world, that heavenly home, the kingdom of God. And so we are not to live according to our sinful flesh, but according to the word of God. We are to live holy and happy and honorable lives that unbelievers might see our good deeds and in the end glorify God. This does not mean that we share the gospel with our lives, with our good deeds, but it means we authenticate the gospel that we share. If you trust in Christ, you are a part of the church. 
a peculiar people. We are sojourners, exiles on this earth. And we are to live not for this world, but for the next. We are to live in this world, but not of this world. We are to be a peculiar people that fascinates others who want to know what is it about them that makes them so joyful, that makes them so peaceful, that makes them so humble. It's a great story uh, or a letter written in the second century, and it's believed to be a work of a Christian named Quadratus, who is from Asia Minor. And so what's so cool about this is Asia Minor is where First Peter was written to. And this letter was written by this Christian to be kind of a defense of Christianity. And it was written to the emperor Hadrian in about 129 AD. Hadrian was a Roman emperor who rebuilt the Parthenon and constructed pagan temples and of Venus and Roma. And so this letter is written to him to tell him who Christians are. And it says this, it's, it's kind of long, but it's really good. It says this, for Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not use a peculiar form of speech. They do not follow an eccentric manner of life. They follow the customs of the country in clothing and food and other matters of daily living. At the same time, they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own society. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens, and they endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them, every fatherland is a foreign land. They marry like everyone else, and they have children, but they do not put their children to death. They share their table with each other, but not their marriage bed. It is true that they are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws demand. They love everyone, but everyone persecutes them. They are put to death, and yet they are brought to life. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor, they are glorified. They are defamed, and yet they are vindicated. They are reviled, and yet they wish only good for those who revile them. When they are insulted, they still act respectfully towards those who insult them. When they do good, they are punished as criminals. When they are punished... They rejoice because they are brought to life. What a peculiar people. What an interesting people that can say, you can take away my health. You can take away my riches. You can take away my life, but you can't take away my joy. You can't take away my foundation. You can't take away my cornerstone. Our agenda is to take the light of the gospel and bring it into the darkness of this world. You see, this group, this peculiar people, this elite group is a group open to anybody who trusts in Christ as their Savior. We are to take the light and bring it into the darkness. Let me end with this. One of the major 
emphasis of this passage, which has not been really mentioned explicitly, but is more implicit in everything that we have said, is that Christianity is a religion that requires community. Cowboy Christianity, solo Christianity, is something that is completely foreign to the New Testament. Many treat church as if it's a restaurant. They just come and they get what they want and then they leave and maybe they leave a tip on the way out. But we are called to be a part of community, to invest in one another, to love one another, to care for one another. And there are ways that we can worship God in community that we cannot worship on our own. God has redeemed us individually, but not individualistically. He's redeemed us to be a part of a community of believers called the church, a peculiar people, a glorious people by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's a story of a solo Christian guy. I think I've shared this before, but, but he, he's at a barbecue with his pastor or with a pastor, and he comes up to him, and basically they're talking, and the pastor asks him, where you been, where you go to church, things like that. And, and he says, I, I don't need a church. It's just me and Jesus. That's all that I need, just me and Jesus, and we're good. And so the pastor took this, this pile of briquettes, of these charcoal briquettes that was heating up, and he took one of them, and he pulled it off, and he put it to the side. And he asked him, he said, what's going to happen to that briquette that's on the side? He said, it's going to grow cold. He said, that's what happens when you put yourself apart from the people of God. See, we are called together to be a part of a community, a community that engages with one another, that is intimate with one another. Matter of fact, if you look on the back of your bulletin, you don't have to do it now, but you'll see there are three emphasis of Jacob's well. And one is that we are community-based, that we would have spiritual intimacy with one another. Now, you can't have that with everybody, but you should have that with somebody, somebody who knows what's going on in your life so that you cannot isolate into your sin and into your darkness, but that you can bring things to the light. And so if you're here today and you are a cowboy Christian, if you are a solo Christian, I want to ask the question, why? I think all of us tend that way. Sometimes it is because of our shame. We don't want to know what's wrong with our life. We don't want anyone to know the ugliness in our hearts. Sometimes it's because of arrogance. We don't think that other people are mature enough to be around us. They don't have things figured out enough. They make us angry. Sometimes it's consumerism. We want people in church to serve us, but we don't want to serve them. Whatever it is, we're reminded today that we are called to be peculiar together. Built on the foundation of Jesus Christ as our cornerstone. We are the new temple, the new people of God together. And we are called to proclaim together with our words and with our deeds, the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this community called the church. I confess I so often take it for granted, Lord, because it's around me all the time. I thank you for this community, God. Lord, pray that we would cherish it And enjoy it as you do. Lord, we know you love your bride, the church. 
because you laid down your life for her. May we cherish her as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.